Welcome to Prescribing Prosperity with your hosts, John and Alex Sutsos from MedWealth Financial Services, operating through IPC Securities Corporation. In this podcast, we provide unique insights into wealth management, the psychology of financial decisions, and help listeners place the capital markets into perspective. Our aim is to help physicians, business owners, and other medical professionals to live their dream. Life is to live and enjoy, so we'll also cover health and lifestyle-related topics such as food, dining, travel, and unique experiences. Learn how global trends shape our investment strategy as we help you assemble your roadmap to prosperity. Hello and welcome to the Prescribing Prosperity Podcast with your hosts, John and Alex Sutsos. Guys, good to be with you again. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. Everything's uh, moving along. Moving along in rocky waters somewhat. Yes, <laughs> Alex, yourself? Yes, the, the, mar- the markets are keeping us on our toes. They are. They are indeed, yeah. Alex. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks, Bill. How are uh, how are you holding up today? I'm fine. I'm I am I to be honest, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started this podcast. I'm finding these this environment a difficult investment environment to navigate and to sort of stay steady on because I mean I, I look at the markets, they're up and I'm like, oh, it's okay. And then they're down, and it seems the longer term trend is down, and then I think no, and then they go up. So I'm glad I have you guys. <laughs> yes. Oh, we appreciate that. Have you yeah. guys to talk yeah. to about this? Yeah, I've, I've, like, I've been I've been through this a few times. You indeed, a, indeed an, you have. There's an old expression. This is not my first rodeo. So, that doesn't mean you haven't been bucked off the horse. So. <laughs> it's it's very difficult. It's very yeah. difficult uh, for everyone involved. Uh, it's especially difficult for uh, the clients, the investors, sure. uh, especially if you're retired. You have fixed ass, a fixed amount of assets remaining. You're no longer uh, drawing a paycheck, and it becomes uh, emotionally more difficult to cope with the ups and downs of the financial markets. But that's precisely uh, when people like ourselves earn their keep is to provide perspective during periods such as these and to be able to be a sounding board and allow people to vent and get things off their chest when they're feeling frustrated. No. And I think the... The one thing to remember, Bill, is, you know, everybody looks at the uh, the long term charts. You know, if you pull up whatever ind- index or uh, stock and you you look at the long term charts like the S&P 500, for example, and you you think about it and you see it's going up. But if you zoom in and you go on a, a year by year basis or a day by day basis, boy, you see a lot of uh, ups and downs along the way there. It's not a, a smooth roller coaster ride to the top. There's uh uh, or I shouldn't say a smooth roller coaster ride. Most roller coasters are not smooth, but uh, <laughs> it's not a smooth ride upwards. There's a lot of little bumps and drops and turns along the way, just as there would be on a roller coaster. And so, uh, a lot of people need to keep that in mind when when managing uh, when managing their assets and looking at the uh, financial markets. No, it's really true, and and that is kind of the perspective behind the backdrop of what you've been talking about for the last two podcasts is that this is not the first difficult time to navigate investments. In fact, there have been periods of times that have been very, very difficult. We left off the last podcast talking about the recession of 2007, 2008, and nine. Where are we going to pick it up today? Absolutely. So we're uh, we're going to pick it up actually right there just after the uh, the Great Recession. But, uh, you know, as we discussed in the last 
the last podcast and even the podcast prior to that, uh, the a lot of the events that unfolded were a response to changes in the monetary supply by the central banks mm-hmm. and low, raising and lowering interest rates over uh, over periods mm-hmm. in time in reaction to uh, market events. Anytime there's an action or intervention in the market, there's always uh, reactions or consequences which emanate from from those measures and nothing ever actually occurs in a vacuum, much to uh, people's dismay. They would like to think that uh, individual actions, uh, the central bank and the government would like to think that certain actions can uh, can occur in, in isolation, but that's never the case, unfortunately. So as we saw with the dot-com bubble, growth stocks had their values inflated and ultimately fell as, uh, as rates began rising. So then they cut rates, rates came down and we saw a, a bubble get created in the housing market. Uh, home buyers were able to take care and take advantage of obscenely advantageous uh, lending practices. And then as rates, be- rates began to rise, the bubble burst, we had the Great Recession. And then in an effort to uh, grease the gears of the financial markets and uh, and get things moving again and stimulate the economy, rates were cut to near zero levels. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of that, uh, at the end of uh, 2009, moving in 2010, there were some uh, some consequences and some fallout to that to that action. And so uh, for that, I'm going to turn it over to my dad. And uh, dad, why don't you take us from uh, 2010 and get this thing moving again? In 2009, obviously, there was a, a presidential election in 2008. A new uh, president took over in 2009. Uh, and events had already begun to unfold to start right-sizing the economy. All sorts of uh, government programs were implemented to try and provide liquidity to the financial system. But the, the the next shoe to fall following the uh, beginning of the recovery with the Great Recession. So the epicenter of the Great Recession was in the United States. And uh, the U.S. took aggressive measures to try and provide, as I said, uh, liquidity to the financial system. Unfortunately, the ripple effects uh, had already begun to spread out. And uh, the seeds of the next crisis, which is the European debt crisis, were sown probably a decade earlier with the beginning of the European Union and the single currency, uh, which was about uh, 2000, 2001 in that time period. So the benefit to a a common currency, obviously, it it greases the the skids for trade in in, uh, Europe. Uh, Producers like Germany uh, can sell their goods easily to other parts of Europe. Uh, and uh, using a unified um, currency, they are able to, other countries are able to buy their products without a problem. Now, the, the issue is this, Germany and France were on one economic plane and Southern Europe were on a different economic plane. Germany and France were economically stable. Southern Europe, all of a sudden, when they went to a common currency, they essentially bought into the Deutschmark. That's essentially what happened. And they did not have the resources to maintain their standard of living. So you had a, a significant, I remember back then family members in Europe saying, we now have to pay twice as much for everything, but our incomes haven't changed. And that's essentially what, and, and twice as much is, is just a, an estimate. It was probably more than twice as much in some cases. So places like Italy and Greece, Spain, Portugal, their standard of living is was effectively uh, cut. 
So what happened was to compensate the interest rates for these countries declined quite significantly because all of a sudden they had the credit rating of Germany and France, which was significantly higher. And so they, didn't, they, they could borrow with significantly lower rates. And in order to maintain their standard of living, uh, both individuals and countries began to borrow and spend. And that's the origin of the European debt crisis uh, back in the early 2000s. Now, by 2009, we get to the point where Greece's government is spending at a rate that they cannot sustain. And they're also cooking the books, so they're not revealing the actual true state of their financial affairs. And so what happened ultimately is Greece revealed in 2009 that their stock of debt was 113% of GDP with a deficit, uh, a fiscal deficit of 13.6% of uh, GDP. Now, let me put those numbers in context. Most developed countries operate with a fiscal G, uh, uh, deficit or surplus. Uh, these days, it's been mostly deficits. But the deficits usually range between uh, 1% and 5% uh, of GDP. Greece's fiscal deficit, in other words, the amount of money the government is spending above and beyond its tax revenues in a given year was 13.6% more. And hold and on one is, second, Dad. Just yeah. to, to add further context to that, the uh, I believe at the time, the rules within the European Union were such that uh, the yeah. deficit as a ratio of, uh, um, it couldn't be any, as a ratio of GDP was not allowed to be any more than 2 to 4%. Three, and three Greece, I believe, was the range, wasn't it? Perhaps, See, but I, it, I recall the number three. That's fine. So it, it's in that in that uh, band right there. But uh, the point is, when they uh, when they initially announced what it was, and Greece had initially uh, announced a figure that was in the range of seven percent, and that was uh, met with a large response or a, a concerned response uh, within the <laughs> European Union. And then when the truth actually came out that, as you mentioned, it was in the neighborhood of closer to thirteen percent. Obviously, that's when uh, the excrement hit the fan. Yeah, so 13.6% uh, uh, was, was the actual percentage. Uh, and the, the initial report was, as you mentioned, uh, close to seven. It was actually 6.7. So Greece's credit rating collapses. Now uh, uh, lenders uh, want much higher interest rates. This compounds the issue. We find Portugal, Spain, and other countries, the so-called pigs, which included Ireland and Iceland uh, and Italy, uh, were in the same boat, and their debt was skyrocketing. Their interest rates were skyrocketing, and inevitably, this resulted in the beginning of a of a major decline in the in the financial markets uh, from April to July of 2010. Uh, now, from peak to trough. We had this, uh, declines on the magnitude of um, 13% in the United States by the S&P 500 index, minus 10 uh, for Canadians investing in uh, Europe, Australia, and the Far East. Um, and worse, oil prices had uh, begun to uh, drop off. So we had a, a ma major economic dislocation, interest rates are skyrocketing, obviously, in, in Europe. So Europe essentially did not cope with their inflated assets immediately in 2008, 2009, as the U.S. did. They were a little bit behind. Uh, the central bank was not aggressive enough in providing liquidity. And, uh, and really, the European Central Bank has a different 
role than the U.S. central bank is in the U.S. Uh, all states are part of one country, whereas in Europe, you had every state, that being countries, had their own fiscal policy with uh, one common market being providing the monetary policy. This is not a sustainable arrangement. And in fact, Margaret Thatcher said as much uh, when she was still the prime minister of the UK in the, in the early part of the 90s. She said, uh, joining the, giving up our currency and joining the monetary union, which had been discussed from the late uh, 80s, early 80s. 90s, right up until uh, the time it took place. Thatcher said she didn't want the UK to have any part of the uh, monetary union. She wanted to maintain control of her own currency. And good for her and good for the UK, because that was the unraveling of, of Greece and the other countries, because uh, now they could not compensate with their significant debt by uh, devaluing their currency, which is the, what the normal practice is. And instead, they had to uh, take significant budgetary cuts, a significant decline in the standard of living uh, in Greece and in all those other countries in order to get to, to right-size their financial situation. And it was very, very painful, and that pain remained for a very long time. And so one thing I think is important to mention just for, for listeners who may not have a, uh, a full understanding <clears throat> of this. So when you have when you have a situation where the the government is overly indebted, uh, what ends up happening when you have rising interest rates is you become unable to uh, to repay or refinance government debt, and then the situation of uh, the fallout from the Great Recession, they were not able to bail out banks uh, who had financial or who had toxic assets on their on their balance sheets, uh, and so at the uh, at the same time, so the ex- uh, the excessive mm-hmm. sovereign debt led uh, lenders to demand higher interest rates to account for the level of risk that was uh, that was present in those economies. And so, as my dad mentioned, you can't, there's a lack of interest in, uh, in investing or, or purchasing assets from, from those economies. And so in order to, uh, you went, what ends up happening is you develop a balance of payments crisis. So balance of payments is a, uh, is a financial term, an economics term for the difference between the level of exports and imports. So these countries who had the uh, the toxic assets and uh, excessive government debt, the so-called pigs, were in a situation where their balance of payments were grossly uh, out of out of whack. Where you had a significant difference between the level of exports and the level of imports that were occurring within the uh, within the country. And so, in order to stimulate exports, normally uh, what ends up happening is countries will devalue their currency to make their goods cheaper on the on the market, it's the same thing as a, a company who would want to go out there and discount their products in order to make them more competitive in the in the marketplace. So when it comes to a, a country and their economy, what they do is they devalue their currency in order to make their goods and services more advantageous and more attractive to foreign investors. And without the ability to do so, without the ability to control their own currency, these countries became uncompetitive uh, and were stuck in a situation where they had a significant amount of debt and no way to bring in additional revenue in order to try and alleviate that debt burden. So I'll I'll, I'll, go ahead. Yeah. So in addition to that, the real estate asset values in Europe also began to fall in uh, following the uh, North American crisis, the Great Recession. And so the assets that banks were, were in Europe were, were relying upon to function uh, were, began to diminish. 
And as a result, you ended up getting a series of cascading domino effect uh, banking closures in Europe, those most spectacular of which was Iceland, which uh, their banking system just completely collapsed and froze. And and, uh, you had several other banks around uh, Europe that went through a similar situation. So this compound thing. Yeah, and in Italy, in uh, twenty by mid twenty sixteen, seventeen percent, approximately seventeen percent, of Italian loans mm-hmm. were considered junk. So four hundred yeah. billion dollars worth of uh, of loans were basically worthless. Yeah, now and, that, and that that's several years later, though. It is several <laughs> years later, but it just puts into uh, it gives a little bit of perspective as to the degree of the contagion with uh, with regards to the toxic or uh, worthless assets that were on the uh, on the books for some of these banks. I know that's uh, a few years down the road, but it just gives a a little bit of perspective so people can understand the degree to which this was impacting the uh, the different banks in these countries. So the remedy uh, was essentially uh, government bailouts from the European Central Bank. Lo- uh, uh, when we say bailouts, we mean extending major loans to some of these countries. Uh, initially, Greece was the principal uh, utilizer of this program uh, as they essentially went bankrupt. Uh, but Ireland um, received the bailout, Spain, Portugal. Uh, austerity measures were imposed on all those countries. Uh, in 2011, the, the crisis deepened. Uh, countries were struggling with debt. And the European uh, Central Bank used the securities market program to buy bonds. Uh, from those countries and uh, to increase the the confidence of investors. And uh, Portugal at that point requested a bailout. Uh, Then Greece received the second bailout in 2012. The the, uh, European Union adopted the fiscal compact, uh, mandating stricter budget disciplines in Greece. Uh, And later in 2012, Spain and Cyprus uh, requested bailouts. And the crisis continued and institutions... uh, uh, continued to work to try and to control it. And eventually all of these programs uh, uh, did eventually create some stability and uh, the the uh, crisis uh, slowly dissipated. Now, when I say dissipated, things were brought under control, but the, the suffering economically in those countries continued to have continued to this day. Uh, there, there's been a major cut in the standard of living uh, a quick anecdote during this period. So uh, one of the things that people were complaining about at the time when the, all of this news was hitting uh, the airwaves was that, oh, geez, these these people in Southern Europe are not paying their taxes and uh, their tax evaders and and uh, they're retiring at age 50 and all of that. And I and I and I, I, I was perplexed by people's lack of perspective because uh, a lot of the the, uh, the people they're referencing in Southern Europe that were retiring at in their early 50s and collecting a pension were government employees, and that didn't make them anything any different from uh, from government employees in Canada uh, or the U.S. where they they got to get their pension in their early 50s and have a a, a decent lifestyle. Um, yet they were uh, pointing fingers and being critical, saying, oh, these people are getting their pensions at an early age and uh, they're not paying their taxes. Well, there, there's a little bit of a, a difference between North America and Europe, especially Southern Europe, 
where uh, the rule of um, uh, uh, law uh, is not was not as adhered to as much because there's a, there was a lot more recognized corruption in the political environment, especially in the southern countries. And so when people were asked to pay income taxes or any form of taxes in the southern countries, they didn't want to do so because they knew that the politicians were taking the money and sticking in their pockets. It wasn't going to the common good of the entire society that everyone's going to benefit. Uh, they didn't have the, the mindset of uh, us here in North America, where we know our revenues are going to the government, and at least most of it is finding its way to where it's, in, it's intended purposes, although I'm a little bit dubious as to how effective it is. Most but might be generous. <laughs> yeah. Some. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so in Europe, they already knew their politicians and uh, bureaucrats were crooks, and they didn't want to pay their taxes. So what happened is there's uh, th these car clubs in, Euro in uh, Europe, especially in Italy with the exotic cars. And uh, these exotic car clubs uh, like Lamborghinis or Ferraris, they would meet at these beautiful resorts in the mountainside uh, periodically to uh, compare and uh, discuss their, their, their wonderful machines. And so clearly, if you own one of these exotic cars, you have a lot of money. So the, the the Italian government during this European crisis, trying to find ways to collect more tax revenues, decides they're going to send their equivalency of the uh, IRS uh, or the CRA here in Canada up into the mountains to wait for these guys to arrive at their destination. So they set up shop uh, like a toll booth uh, further down the roads. And they got their their uh, their roadblocks and people are coming up. They're stopping. They're saying, oh, hi, good morning. This is... Uh, uh, welcome to the uh, Ferrari uh, club, uh, car club. Uh, what's your name? And uh, they would get the person's name. And then they have uh, the tax roll there on in front of them. They say, oh, that's interesting. Uh, Mr. Lamborghini, you're, uh, it says here you make 50,000 euros a year, yet you can afford a, um, a Ferrari. How How do you manage that? And so they busted all these guys and uh, they, they uh, began collecting uh, tax revenues in a more significant way uh, by doing things like that. And uh, measures for tax collection became a lot more stringent in Southern Europe than they had ever been before. And uh, they, they got a dose of North American taxation reality during that period. I think it's also important to uh, to understand, though, that uh, during this time, even though they uh, they implemented these austerity measures and they obviously mm -hmm. did have a a positive impact from the standpoint that they were able to uh, try and rein in some of the mm -hmm. uh, the deficit spending that was occurring, it did result in a significant amount of political strife and political unrest. So, for the better part of the next decade, if you will, both uh, Italy and Greece, and I, I'm sure this was true for some of the other countries as well went through a myriad of different governments. You know, I remember in Greece at uh, at certain points and in Italy for that matter as well, there were periods of time where uh, the government wasn't lasting more than uh, a couple of months before it was being toppled uh, by no by votes of non-confidence. And so you had this perpetual cycle of, you know, new government gets in, people are still unhappy about the austerity measures imposed by the European Union, government falls. New government comes in, they promise different uh, outcomes, the people are still unhappy by the uh, about the austerity measures, they get voted out, they fall, next government comes in. And so we had a period of turmoil, and in Italy it wasn't, it wasn't until recently that they finally uh, achieved a certain degree of stability, but it, it was a very difficult time. And as, uh, as you know, and uh, as I'm sure our listeners are probably well aware, the 
the financial markets do not like uh, instability in uh, in politics. That can uh, result in a great deal of volatility in the markets as well. Well, well political stability in Italy is an oxymoron. They no, they no. change their governments there like uh, most people change their underwear, and that's that's been a, a chronic issue in Italy for decades and decades. I can speak uh, uh, with more detail about Greece uh, because of my uh, Greek heritage. And what was going on in Greece is the socialists, the left-wing uh, political parties for years had grabbed power. Uh, and the way they grabbed power is in a country that had very limited manufacturing and other industries and were reliant primarily on tourism. They kept promising uh, jobs by opening up uh, the bureaucracy and creating more government work. And also they kept promising uh, spending programs to get elected and into power. And e eventually the right uh, wing of the political uh, factions in, in Greece were saying, well, if we don't start promising similar things, we're, we're, we'll never gain power. And so while the government switched from left to right a few times in the in the 10 years or in the 15 years leading up to the uh, European crisis in the Greek bankruptcy, uh, the right wing political parties had essentially thrown in the towel and they were right wing in name only. Uh, or in very limited fashion, maybe uh, maybe from a, a social perspective, but from a fiscal perspective, they were spending just as much money uh, to to get the the votes as the left wing was, and so, so esen essentially you 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 lost that balancing force. Yeah, so it's funny you mentioned that because when I was look, I was researching uh, the European uh, debt crisis and doing a bit of reading on it. I I myself was just out of curiosity uh, i was trying to see which which governments were in power at different times and what policies they implemented and it's funny you mentioned that they started to blend into each other because when i was doing my research i was trying to figure out this doesn't look like uh, a traditional you know conservative fiscal policy or uh, you know they all they all seem to be very one-sided and uh, and very similar and uh, it is in fact because as you mentioned they they had both moved in that direction and there was uh, there was a lack of balance on both sides it was it was very one-sided in terms of the policies that were being implemented, regardless of which uh, party was theoretically in power. So that, that's right. And uh, the truth is, here in North America, the distinct the, the distinguishing feature from a fiscal perspective and fiscal responsibility between uh, the left and right is is beginning has begun to diminish now for probably uh, three or four decades. The mm -hmm. only difference between us here in North America and those in Europe is our fiscal capacity to borrow is much greater, especially the United States, because the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. And so this capacity to borrow and uh, have interest rates that are competitively lower than most other places in the world has allowed this, this charade uh, to continue in North America longer than it than it should. But we're, we're starting to run into um, a hard ceiling in North America, uh, especially in the United States. And uh, this is where fiscal sanity really needs to start uh, reigning. Uh, otherwise, uh, there will be future crises in North America, uh, similar to what happened in Europe. For sure, for sure. We're gonna, unless you have anything else you wanna mention on the European debt mm -hmm. crisis, Dad, I'm gonna transition us out of there. Was there anything else you wanted to cover? No, that, that's that's essentially it. But uh, as, as uh, we've been learning over the last uh, couple of episodes, one uh, debt crisis bleeds into another because the ripples continue to spread. Absolutely. So uh, as a stone uh, being dropped in a pond, the, the ripples extend across the surface of the water. So following the European debt crisis, we enjoyed actually a pretty spectacular run in the uh, the equity markets, including a secular bull market that began in uh, April of uh, 2013, 
Although some people will argue that the origins of the uh, bull market date back all the way to uh, 2009. But regardless of your desired uh, start point, uh, we enjoyed a pretty prosperous period in the markets. But uh, what people sometimes uh, forget is uh, along the way, there are uh, some some bumps along the road and some uh, blips on the radar. And so uh, one of those happened in 2015 when we had the uh, economic crisis in China. So Why don't you walk us through what happened and how the effects of that crisis bled over into the U.S. markets? Well, just like in Europe, where the the seeds of the crisis were sown a decade earlier, essentially a similar situation happened in China for different reasons. So China was a a communist country uh, for uh, for five, six decades. And uh, having fallen behind the rest of the world, they realized that they began to liberalize their economy eventually. They got to the point where they began to allow uh, a free, uh, a free economic zone in China to allow some uh, free market economics to create some prosperity, and part of this objective to create prosperity was to move their rural population, which was all, China was almost entirely a rural population for the most part, uh, to move them into cities. And so through the 90s and the early 2000s, there was an an effort to do this. And uh, coupled with some um, wealth that was created from the privatization of a a part of the Chinese economy, uh, there was a a major effort to to build new infrastructure and create brand new cities in China or or take older cities and uh, modernize them. So there was this massive build going on that uh, from uh, roughly the early 2000s to 2013 with uh, the peak happening between tw- uh, 2010 and 2013. And yet uh, all these office towers and commercial properties, residential high rises were constructed. The demand for uh, for uh, for commodities increased during that period. So oil prices were rising as a result and prices for steel and all these other things. Uh, that was actually a good period for Canada when all these commodities were in demand. But eventually what happened was uh, they, the Chinese economy collapsed under the, its own weight. Uh, there, the population could not afford to to move into these places and they began they were essentially uh, um, go, many ghost towns to this day there's uh, ghost towns in China from uh, 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 high rises that were built during this period that have not been occupied things have been improving a little bit but this began uh, to be a big problem so, uh, so oil prices then collapsed as uh, demand for commodities fell off and um the Chinese stock market began to collapse as there was actually government encouraged speculation in in uh, in stocks because China did not have a stock market for the longest time, and then uh, the Shanghai Index was opened uh, during this period, and uh, the Chinese historically uh, the only wealth the only place they put their wealth was in in real estate, so there was an encouragement to create uh, wealth through the uh, financial markets, and uh, so people started to. To speculate, and uh, there, there was unlike here in North America and in Europe, where institutions essentially uh, are responsible for the majority of the trading on the stock markets. In China, it was the other way around; it was individuals, and the individuals were just simply speculating on some of these nascent companies that were uh, created during this period in China. So eventually, uh, the Chinese market peaked and collapsed, and we had a major, major dislocation in the financial markets. Uh, and the decline in uh, Chinese economic activity reverberated over to the rest of the world. 
And in, uh, from about uh, August of uh, 2015, uh, August 1, 2015 to August 24, 2015, uh, the uh, S&P 500 index dropped 10%. Uh, the Europe, uh, Europe, Australia and the Far East uh, dropped 14.3%. Um, oil during that period dropped 40%. The TSX here in Canada dropped 15.4%. It was an ugly period, um, but there was actually a rapid recovery uh, by November of 2015. So in a span of about a month and a half, there's a rapid recovery. Most of the markets had recovered their losses. The US had completely recovered. Uh, the uh, Europe, Australia, and the Far East were still down about 5%. But then as things stabilized, uh, they began to deteriorate again between November of 15 and February 11th of 2016. And then we had an additional drop in the market that was far more severe in the US. The market fell nearly 13%. Uh, Europe, Australia, Far East fell nearly 18%. Uh, Canada fell 15.4%. Um, and oil continued its uh, to drop further. And in fact, oil had peaked out in July of 2014. And from 2014 until uh, the end of February of 2016, the peak to trough decline in oil was on the magnitude of 70. That's 7-0, minus 70%. So the, um, there was a stagnation in, in the economy. Uh, I remember this while the uh, US and Canadian economies were very stagnant between 2015 and 16. The markets were doing nothing. Um, investors were becoming uh, frustrated with two years of uh, little returns. Um, and uh, this is all to do with the uh, Chinese situation, which uh, eventually uh, was able to recover because China does control its own currency. So they had to devalue their currency uh, to uh, increase their exports. Uh, they did cut their interest rates. And so between those two efforts, eventually we had some stabilization. Yep, absolutely. And now, stabilization to a, a certain degree we are uh, presently actually experiencing some of the uh, the aftermath still of that overbuild that occurred in China during that period from uh, when was it 2010 to 2013 uh, and so or actually even perhaps even sooner than that you can uh, trace it all the way back to 2000 um, so we're still seeing a, a certain degree of uh, um, of impact uh, that is still being felt from uh, from those measures and and the actions that took place back then. So during that time, you know, tell us a little bit about how were your clients responding at that time? Yeah, you mentioned briefly that they were they were a little bit upset, but um, how did they respond, and how long did it take for for things to fully stabilize and recover? Well, the the period of turbulence was essentially between 2014 and 2016, and so essentially markets uh, on a net basis ended up going sideways. Now, one of the benefits of running um, a practice is we we investors don't buy the indices they're invested in packaged instruments that are highly diversified and had uh, included bonds and bonds during this period were actually quite stable at least north american bonds were actually quite stable and they provided a a bit of a cushioning so just looking at some of our our growth model uh was during that period um uh, uh, during the crisis fell 6%, uh, which I would say was about uh, half of the decline of the S&P 500 index and probably one third of the decline in the international markets. The balance portfolio only fell 4%. So we really didn't have significant pullbacks in the investments that our clients were invested in, but they also were not growing. 
So there was some bouncing around for uh, two to three years. And the net result was, although there, there wasn't a, a big drawdown, uh, there was a lack of growth. And a lack of growth psychologically can also play a, 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 a significant role in, in people's psychology and cause them to question what they're doing and how they're doing it. So it was a very uncomfortable situation. Uh, that bleeds into the next area, and that is uh, the unfolding developments in the U.S. political scene in 2016, where there's a lead up to a uh, an election. Uh, Obama has finished serving uh, two terms, so you know there's going to be a change in the presidency. And the markets were meandering until uh, election night on November 8th, 2016. And uh, it was a very unusual night. I remember it very well uh, when it was when it was called that uh, Trump was going to win the presidency. The, the overnight futures market dropped uh, uh, by its maximum amount permitted which was minus 5%. But by morning, when you woke up, the futures market had completely switched and uh, and the market ended up going up 2%. So that's a swing of 7% in a single night. So it was said at that time that uh, the thought of a, a businessman taking over re released the animal spirits of the business community. And so there was a, a, a big run in the financial markets from uh, election night uh, right through to the end of 2016, 2017, until the third quarter of 2018, when uh, there was a, a trade tensions uh, uh, between the U.S. and China, and that caused a 25% a uh, uh, or sorry, a 20% decline in the final quarter of 2018 before um, a, a quick recovery in early 2019 led to even better returns in 2019. And then that, that brings us into the beginning of 2020. And do you want to set the backdrop for that? Yeah. So before we get to uh, to 2020, I just wanted to pull something up here to uh, give people some perspective. So as, although, so you mentioned the fact that we had from 2015 to 2016 and essentially a, a flat market, yeah. you know, there really wasn't a whole lot of returns to be had on the, uh, on the equity side. But as I mentioned, it depends on your perspective when it comes to uh, gauging performance and, and gauging uh, and gauging how well or poorly the market is doing. So if you look at that small period from 2015, 2016, mm -hmm. it was flat. But if you zoom out and you look at the whole bull market right up until the uh, where we're going to get to, which is the 2020 onset of the pandemic, the from 2013, April of 2013 until February of uh, 2020. The market increased uh, in the neighborhood of about 145%. That is a total rate of return. So that's even with a two-year period from 2015 to 2016, or not even two full years, maybe about a year and a half, where there was essentially nothing going on. And another period where there was a significant decline at the uh, uh, in the later, uh, the latter stages of uh, 2018 going into uh, the end of that year. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Dad, that that was the uh, the first time or one of the uh, the first periods of significant rate hikes. Actually, I can I can quickly uh, double in check 20, that. Yeah, interest yes. uh, rate hikes um, began in uh, twenty in twenty sixteen. I'm, I'm looking 2016, at it right now. Yeah, actually, the twenty fifteen. Sorry, twenty December twenty fifteen was when the first rate hike in the Correct. U.S. happened. Uh, it was a quarter point. It, uh, interest rates went from a quarter point. So this is now coming out of the 
Great Recession, uh, 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 free interest rate environment from 2009 until that period. So you had uh, five, six years of essentially uh, uh, interest rates being zero. Mm -hmm. And so the first rate hikes begin December of 2015, and there's a quarter point rate hike. Um, there was a gap between 2015, 2016, and then there was another rate hike of a quarter point. And then through 2017, there are three more hikes yeah. of a quarter point each. So interest rates, central bank in the U.S. got up to one and a half percent. And then there was uh, three interest rate hikes in uh, in 2018 uh, before the December one of uh, that added up to another three quarters of a percent. Then the December one happened to bring it up to two and a half percent. So that was a lot of strain. And in fact, I remember uh, Jerome Powell was talking about raising rates throughout 2019, but that never materialized. Yeah. And uh, and the markets uh, uh, as a result began to recover because that, re that uh, big drop in 2018 in the last quarter uh, during the tensions with China uh, resu resulted in the economy weakening. So they didn't have to raise rates. Yeah, so that that's where I think uh, again some perspective matters because when when people hear what the what the Fed says, they come out and they they make their announcements after their uh, their meetings, and uh, and Jerome Powell obviously has to convey the the tone and the the belief that exists within those uh, those meetings. What ends up happening afterwards is not always uh, exactly according to script when it comes to uh, what the Fed says. You know, what they say is not gospel and what they say is not written in stone. And so, you know, for everybody who thinks we're going to be stuck at higher for longer, uh, well, we may be, we may not be. It's we'll, we'll be higher for longer. And so long as the uh, the economy allows it, if the, the economy gets into a situation, as it may very well uh, in the near in the not too uh, distant future, uh, where it starts to uh, slide back into uh, contractionary uh, phase. They may find the need to to cut rates, especially as we mentioned in the last podcast in the year of an election or two podcasts ago, we mentioned yeah. we're, we're approaching the year of an election. And so the, 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 the central bank of the United States is notorious for saying one thing and doing something else, uh, especially during this period that you're describing here in tw late 2018, where the rate hikes had already begun earlier in the year, and they were saying, we plan to make X number of rate increases into 2019. And in fact, they did not do so. And they ended up having to cut rates uh, in 2019 three times by three quarters of a percent. So part of monetary policy is actually called um, a moral suasion. And that is to uh, talk up or talk down uh, the capital markets uh, and the economy to behave before the central bank actually uh, uh, moves. And in fact, uh, when we get to to the present time, uh, I'll, I'll touch on how the, the market moved even before the first rate increase to, took place in 2022. Yeah. So as you mentioned, we had about, uh, I think it was either four or five uh, rate increases in 2018. Obviously, uh, the market uh, started to uh, move in the opposite direction as a result of those uh, those rate increases. The market dropped uh, going into the uh, the end of 2018. So what did they do? They cut rates again, and we're back down to uh, uh, near zero levels. But that uh, that is not necessarily a direct response to the uh, the market correction that occurred in 2018 2019. That ends up being in response to what unfolded next, which was the uh, the pandemic and. That was not a period that anybody was looking forward to uh, reliving. I I know myself. I found it difficult when I was preparing for the podcast uh, to motivate myself to 
relive some of these details and the uh, the insanity that ensued over uh, the previous three years. But uh, obviously, we have to get to it and we have to discuss what exactly happened. So tell us a little bit about what happened in the lead up to 2020 and ultimately what unfolded in February and uh, and March of that year. So what's interesting is uh, there was discussion of this virus in China in late 2019 and early 2020. And uh, in my, in tracking the markets on a daily basis, I was I was surprised that uh, there was no response in the in the capital markets here. And um, I was wondering, okay, well, this sounds serious, but the markets don't don't seem to be worried about this and they seem to be shrugging it off. And so uh, we, uh, well, there wasn't any extraordinary actions that we took on our part. Uh, we, we carried on. And uh, really when uh, things hit the fan was uh, when uh, the, there was uh, discussions of closing the borders um, to uh, airplane travel and uh, restricted movements and eventually the uh two weeks to to uh slow the spread uh, talk in in march and and during this period a sphere mounted from the beginning of february up until the let's two weeks to uh, to stop the spread um the virus was uh, was spreading rapidly you got all this news showing people dying and people in hospitals and hospitals being overwhelmed and uh, and the markets began their their collapse, and it was it was a very rapid it was a waterfall uh, collapse that took the market down over thirty percent from peak to trough from the beginning of February till the third week of of March, yeah. uh, before the central bank had to step in and uh, announce major rate cuts. So in March of twenty twenty. You had a, an initial cut of 50 basis points on March 3rd, bringing the interest rate uh, down to uh, one uh, to uh, one and a quarter percent. And then you had another cut uh, of 100 basis points, bringing the interest rate down to one quarter of a percent in uh, just two weeks later on March 16th. And with those interest rate cuts, there was a, a rapid rally and recovery in the financial markets. But interestingly enough, the sector of the market that rallied the most was actually the most aggressive sector, and that's the the tech sector, uh, because these are what we call in in investment parlance long dated securities. So their their growth, the growth of their earnings, uh, is longer in in the future. And when you have zero interest rates and you discount that future growth to the present, the lower the interest rate, the more valuable those future cash flows are. And so you had a massive rally in uh, software and technology through uh, 2020, uh, bringing the the market up into into a nice place. In 2021, more of that continued, and then in uh, late 2021, we we had a, a situation where uh, Powell and the central bank began saying that rates are going to have to go up, and uh, things began turning nasty in 2022. Correct. And uh, hold on. Uh, yeah. We're getting, you're moving at a rapid pace here. So we're going to get to 2022 in just a moment. But um, just to give some further context, you know, we had a, you know, March 16th of uh, of 2020, which was, uh, according to some people, uh, became known as uh, Black Monday 2. Uh, that's the Roman numerals 2, not T-O-O. And uh, so Black Monday 2 on March 16th, the S&P or the uh, Dow Jones, excuse me, fell 12.93%. Uh, so it was another 
big day in which uh, there was a major move in the stock market as uh, as things began to shudder around the world. Uh, I believe it was on the the next day, the Tuesday. Uh, it's Tuesday, actually, maybe it was the Wednesday. I think it was the Wednesday uh, when the uh, the NBA shut down. And uh, I remember I was actually in. It was actually after a hockey game, and I was sitting in the dressing room, and we got the news alert, and we all looked around and said, "This might be the last time we see each other for a while." And uh, in actuality, that team I was playing on at the time uh, never uh, got back together again. We we still haven't played together since then, but uh, um, the uh, it, it was a, a strange time in the uh, in the markets. Obviously, there was a, a lot of uncertainty with uh, with regards to what was going to happen, and so. The economy was shut down, and obviously, when the economy gets shut down, that's negative for uh, for the financial markets. At the same time, or shortly thereafter, we also had the uh, uh, the Russia Saudi Arabia oil price war, uh, which uh, contributed to uh, to a decline in uh, in the equity markets as well as that created additional uh, instability. It also significantly reduced the uh, the price of oil on the uh, on the market. And then, uh, as you mentioned, uh, we had the significant rate cuts that happened in uh, in 2020. And then so, uh, at the same time, we also had an unprecedented degree of uh, government stimulus, which occurred during uh, during that period. And that was not limited to just the United States. We saw it here in Canada. And uh, it was similarly uh, echoed across the uh, globe as other countries and other governments provided uh, financial liquidity into the markets and injected uh, money into the economy by providing uh, people with essentially uh, pandemic relief funds, which then uh, were used to plow back into everyday spending and uh, purchasing and consumption. And that ultimately led to uh, what ended up unfolding in 2022. So uh, why don't you explain how that stimulus and how those rate cuts contributed to the to the events of uh, 2022 when we experienced yet another uh, market correction? Well, first of all, the, the, uh, the thing that I recall during throughout that period especially when the announcement was made two weeks to flatten the curve um i i sent an email to a colleague i said the the cure cannot be worse than the disease there are no right or wrong answers in economics we only have trade-offs and my background in economics and my experience in the financial industry taught me that uh, the economy is uh, very intertwined very delicate and uh, the supply chain is everyone's reliant on each other especially in a in a world of globalization that's taken place over the preceding 25 to 30 years so to shut down the economy completely um i knew there were going to be significant economic reverberations and it was likely um uh, not a a wise move to be making uh, at any time in human history. And if you, at that time I reflected back over the preceding 100 years and there had been numerous pandemics, including a polio pandemic um, uh, throughout the 20th century, yet the, the economies were never shut down. There was a world war in 2018 uh, to, uh, sorry, uh, 19... Ended in 2017. <laughs> 1914 to 1918 there was a world war and you had the the uh, there was a pandemic during that period uh and the uh, global the economy was, uh, yeah the spanish flu was never shut down uh, and there was a variety of other uh, smaller pandemics throughout the 20th century it was never shut down and and to to shut down for uh, an airborne um virus uh, 
to me, did not make sense, especially a coronavirus, which is essentially a, a cold virus that mutates rapidly. So it's un unlike uh, other uh, diseases that uh, where the the uh, bacteria or the virus is stable and you can create vaccines that eliminate the risk. Uh, it was a cold virus. It's constantly mutating, so it's it's a moving target. And it's very it just just like the flu virus. It's it's yeah. a moving target. Every year they come up with new concoctions, and only one third of it is effective. So to shut down the global economy and disrupt everything, the supply chains was a, a massive, in my opinion, uh, at the time. I thought that was going to be uh, problematic, and and we saw it was very problematic. Uh, toilet paper became so very valuable, of all things. Uh, people didn't want to go uh, without toilet paper. So um, the breaking well, down of the supply chains created a lot of distortions in the economy and created a lot of inflation in the yeah. economy. And, and you have to remember the fact that you know the the economy is not like a faucet, and, and the the global supply chain is not a faucet where you can just turn the tap on and off whenever you feel like it and water appears and water disappears at a, at a moment's notice. It's it's more like a 250 car train that is riding along on the rails and all of a sudden imagine a giant just stuck their hand in front of the train and stopped it dead in its tracks and you're going to get all the previous cars which are coming along behind the train are going to start crashing into each other and there's going to be spills and and leakage everywhere and it's going to take a lot of time to to clean up that mess and get the get the tracks cleared in order for the uh the rail line to reopen and to a certain extent we still have not achieved that you know you the, the mess has not been cleaned up to, to date and, and it's it's hard for one central authority to clean up that mess it, essentially uh the central the bank's um, the central banks of the world, led by the United States, uh, cut rates. So they created what the monetary stimulus. This created this great demand, yet uh, the economy was, for the most part, closed. And people had very few places where they could spend money. And where they did spend money, prices skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. And uh, we created this inflation. At the same time, you had fiscal stimulus. So governments borrowed money in order to to uh, compensate people for the fact that uh, some of them could not work. And that created more demand. And 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 there was, again, still limited supply through, through this period. So all of a sudden, we have these uh, massive uh, expenditures, both uh, by the monetary authorities and the fiscal authorities, and that created this wave of inflation that we've seen over the last several years. So hold on, let me pause you for a second. Sorry, just uh, before you discuss that. So you you talk about the the uh, the stimulus that was injected into the economy. So first of all, you have people is not people are receiving additional money. So that's number one. Number two, you have people who are not going anywhere. So regular expenditures on things like travel, commute times gas money, uh, car insurance, all of that goes away. So people have more money. So you have more money that way. Number three, you have fewer goods that are being produced because you shut off the supply chains, because you have production being shut down because uh, because companies are not going into, the, uh, into manufacturing or into uh, whatever industry it is, they are not producing goods and services. There are fewer goods that are in the economy that are available for purchase. And at the same time, you have more money that is chasing them. I've already isolated three different uh, examples of how there's more money and not to mention the uh, the lower interest rates. So people who are on things like uh, variable rate mortgages, they're seeing their cost of living go down. And so you've, you've got more money chasing fewer goods. And what does that result in? 
and then inflation. results in, in inflation and uh, an, an inflation that has permanently reduced everyone's standard of living on a cumulative basis in the magnitude of about 20% over the last several years. And the inflation is not yet over. The rate of change in prices uh, has, has peaked uh, in 2022. It's been coming down, but it's been coming down uh, only because uh, the central bank started to raise interest rates to choke off some of the demand. Unfortunately, uh, the people in charge of fiscal decisions in North America and in Europe um, have not stopped spending money. And in fact, there's a major uh, stimulus program in the United States in 2021 uh, that is responsible for the continued uh, uh, excess money in the financial system. And that's causing what they call sticky inflation. People are saying, you know, why is it inflation is so sticky? Well, it's sticky because you have two opposing forces. You have monetary policy that's trying to reduce money supply and your fiscal policy that's expanding money supply. And so you have these two major opposing forces and, and inflation is, is sticky. Um, that being said, inflation has now begun to drop uh, on a year over year basis uh, to a point where it's starting to, to be within the historical range. Uh, but the damage has now been done. It's, it was done in terms of the cost of living for everyone has increased on, on a permanent basis, but the damage was also done to the stock market. So in uh, late 2021, the market peaked. In 2022, the central bank started talking about uh, pain coming with interest rates uh, are going to go up. And these repeated uh, warnings by the central bank that rates were going to go up uh, in the early part of 2022 uh, began to find their way into the psycho psychology of the stock market. And so the stock market started to decline quite rapidly from the basically from New Year's Day in 2022 and uh, eventually bottomed out in the summer after declining roughly 19 to 20% if you're using the S&P 500 as a, as a, a yardstick. Actually had a double bottom because they, they bottomed yeah. again in October. Yeah. So. so there was a, a bounce, a bounce into August of 2022, mid August. And then you had another major central bank meeting where uh, Powell uh, threw Jackson cold, hole. Yeah. 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 Jackson hole. He threw cold water on everyone's uh, enthusiasm and brought the market back down to, uh, to its previous lows by uh, mid October of 2022. And we're now a year removed from that. And um, we, we've continued to have a central bank that continues to be belligerent toward uh, the capital markets. And that's why we're struggling with what, uh, what's going on in the financial markets right now. Uh, that coupled with uh, obviously the development of uh, war, regional wars in Europe, uh, yeah. Russia, Ukraine, yeah. and um, the attacks on Israel more recently. And so this is all creating a... Um, uh, uh, distortions and and concerns in the in the capital markets and uh, it's a, it seems to be never ending. Yet we we have put the microscope uh, or the magnifying glass, I should say, on all these crises over the over the course of the last uh, forty to fifty years, and we've explained in great detail the negative impacts. But over time, gradually, uh, markets eventually recovered and. Uh, as Bill was saying at the start of the program, this is where uh, the financial advisor uh, earns their keep is they provide the perspective and uh, they make sure the asset mix is appropriate for the individual in order to allow them to stay in the game and not pull out at the wrong time. And so this is the value of, of having a detached, uh, someone who's emotionally detached 
uh, to be able to be able to provide perspective. And, and that's what we're doing right now for our clients. Emotionally detached and also has the benefit and the knowledge of what has happened in the past. Cause I, what ends up happening a lot of times with, with, uh, with investors, individuals who have not studied in great depth, what has happened historically in the markets, they end up with a bit of a myopic perspective, even if they've lived through prior market crises, there's always the uh, the immediacy and, and the recency bias of looking at what's occurring right now and projecting it into the future and saying the markets collapsed last year. You know, last year the uh, the market dropped almost twenty percent, and therefore I, I assume that the next year it's going to drop another twenty percent, which isn't necessarily true. You need to understand what the what the context of that decline was, what caused it, and and how it fits into the broader perspective of uh, market history. So just to uh, to put some uh, statistics to it. So as I mentioned, uh, last year, the market declined 19.44%, uh, almost 20%. Uh, where in 2020, it had gone up 27%. So you had a spectacular, or 2021, excuse me, you had a, a return of 20, 27% on the S&P 500. So you had a spectacular return followed by a spectacular collapse. And so, you know, depending on which uh, which time period you're sampling people's opinions in, if it's 2021 and you ask them, what do you think the market's going to do next year? It's going to be great. It's going to go up another 27%. If you ask them at the end of last year, a lot of people were saying, oh, it sucks. The market's going to take another dump and uh, I'm going to be uh, broke and living on the street and begging for money at the uh, at the lights and offering to wash people's windshields. So, you know, that's where, as my dad mentioned, it really is important that you have somebody who can who can provide you with a an honest and objective perspective and give you a little bit of an understanding as to what is happening right now, where we are in the cycle, and what is likely going to be the outcome, not just in the the immediate near term, but in the inter in the intermediate and longer term as well. Because ultimately, as investors, you're invested for the long term and you need to maintain that perspective when you are evaluating your portfolio. So before we get into a um, a recap of everything and some common themes and takeaways. I just want to get your perspective, Dad. Um, what were people, what were your clients saying and what was their uh, response to what happened in 2020? And then you can also uh, add in there their response and their reaction to what was happening in, in 2022. Well, I, I, I think people's reactions in 2020 they were more overwhelmed by the pandemic closures and the inability to move around and uh because the central bank jumped in quickly in march to to right size the financial markets and there was a nice recovery in in the second half of 2020 there wasn't as much concern about the financial markets in the second half of 2020 as there was a big recovery um 2021 again another another big run up uh, so people were more focused on on the uh the problems with with not having their freedom and being able to move around during 2021 uh but i think uh, we're we're beginning to see the the unraveling of the uh, pandemic impact more so in the last year and a half uh so it wasn't 2020 where we saw the negative response by investors and clients it was in 2022 and 2023 that we're seeing the negative response and people are nervous right now they're very nervous i i try and repeat things i've said in the past which is that as long as people are alive on the planet and they're spending money someone is earning that money and creating goods and services that create value and that create 
cash flows and revenues, and you can uh, buy shares in those businesses. I like to point out that consumer staples, which are the things that we rely on to survive food, beverages, uh, the supermarkets that sell these things, uh, they they are uh, they have a perpetual demand, uh, regardless of what's going on in the world. And and then of course you have the aging demographic in the world, especially in Western Europe and North America, that's creating pressure on the medical system and healthcare. And so there's increasing demand uh, on those uh, on in that industry. Uh, so you have a lot of that, and and there are other industries that are benefiting as well. We see the continued um, evolution of the technology industry. Um, and, and, and industrial companies are also producing goods and services that are being utilized. So, so business continues in spite of all these problems, in spite of short-term impairment uh, due to a, a constraint on the money supply, which is what's going on with central banks raising rates. The, all of these impairments are temporary in nature, and we're trying to put things into perspective to, uh, for people and to let them realize that it, it's going to pass. This is not forever. And it's just a matter of uh, trying to maintain your your perspective and uh, not pay too much attention to the mainstream media, which is focused on clicks and, and emotional uh, swings to increase viewership. Uh, so that's that's what's been going on. It's It's been a great challenge. Our portfolio did very well through 2022. Uh, 2023, things have been meandering sideways for, for obvious reasons. Um, we've had what I call the iceberg market in 2023. You have uh, seven to 10 companies that are above water and 490 companies that are below water. Mm -hmm. And uh, the S&P 500 index is not really indicative of what's really happened in the market in 2023. Yeah. So there's, a, if, you, there's... if you pull out the uh, the magnificent seven from the uh, from the market returns, the, the market is actually in negative territory. Yeah, over uh, 2023. That's and I right. think a lot of people uh, forget that, you know, I had a client meeting recently where they wanted to know, you know, why is it my portfolio um, has kind of gone sideways over the last year, but I, I see that there are other uh, ETFs or other stocks that have gone up. And I said, well, no, and you and I have talked about this and I, and we've mentioned it to multiple clients. It's not specific to this one client, but not all uh, industries and, and not all stocks can lead 100% of the time there is always going to be rotation. There's always going to be periods in which certain uh, sectors are more in favor and more in vogue. And as a result, that's why you need a, a well-constructed portfolio. And what you want is a portfolio that over the long term has, as you mentioned, perpetual demand, minimizes the, the level of volatility in terms of the stocks and industries that it's invested in, and is able to generate a positive return over a full market cycle and not just in uh, small periods of a year or, or six months you know you need to have a long perspective in order to be able to fully evaluate the the performance of a uh, of a portfolio and of a portfolio strategy and so uh with that i'm going to uh do a a quick little uh uh learning takeaway session with you here dad so obviously we since we began we've we've journeyed across 50 years of market history and covered 12 different crises actually 13 different crises and obviously, each of these crises has had their own unique attributes and causes. But can you recap what overriding themes were consistent across all of these different events? The, the overriding theme, essentially, is dislocations in the financial markets are usually triggered by actions taken by governments. So when governments intervene in the, in the free market system, they create 
dislocations and demand and supply in, uh, like we we said, the proverbial uh, stone in the pond, there are ripple effects. And uh, you, in the wake of these ripples, which are not ripples in the financial system, especially when you shut down the global economy, uh, that becomes more of the the wake of a speed a tsunami, uh, yeah, or a tsunami. Uh, there there are massive massive implications on the economy, and this has been going on for decades now. Constant interventions by governments with fiscal policy or monetary policy. We we saw uh, in uh, uh, in early in the early eighties in response to the inflation of the seventies a massive cut in interest rates. Uh, sorry, and initially a major increase in interest rates, which tipped the economy into recession, and then a recovery from that that created some prosperity in the in in for most of the eighties, only to be followed by interest rate increases at that time to trigger another decline in the early nineties, and then you had uh, wars uh, taking place in the early nineties, and then you had uh, bubbles being created in stocks and real estate as a result of the uh, up and down yo-yoing effect of of central bank policy and fiscal policy over the course of time. I think it, looking back over the last 50 years, the, the period of the gr greatest amount of uh, economic sanity was in the latter half of the 1990s, where in the United States, you had a, a, a split uh, government. We had a, a, a Democrat president and a Republican Congress, and they came to an agreement to cut government expenditures. Mm -hmm. And that triggered a, a surplus in government revenue, and it created uh, uh, five years of enormous prosperity in the, in the financial markets. And I think we are approaching that point now in the United States with uh, a split uh, government. And uh, over the course of the next uh, few years, we hope that they, they have some uh, fiscal sanity that returns to them and monetary sanity so that we can have another period of uh, prosperity. But the common theme over this period has been uh, uh, government interventions, central bank interventions, and military conflict. Those are the uh, things that typically uh, trigger crises and create problems. And so one of the, uh, what then would be the takeaways or some of the important concepts that we can provide to to investors you know so, uh, so, what, some what... of the some of the takeaways involve it when it comes to uh first of all as an investor a, a growth of capital begins with the decision to to save mm -hmm. so you, first of all you have to save money you, you can't spend everything you earn once you make the decision to save the next decision is where do you put those savings and history has demonstrated that the ownership of business is the greatest wealth creator um, in the world. And so you need to own some high quality businesses. The other item that needs to be actively discussed is, is the fact that there are inevitably going to be things that occur uh, geopolitically, internationally, uh, that come out of left field that you don't anticipate. And that is where the greatest risk lies in, in the uh, capital markets is the unknown. Um, what is already unfolding at the present time is already known and the capital markets have already responded to it. So we talk about the wars. Well, now that the war in Israel has begun, that risk has been priced into the market. The war in Russia and Ukraine, that's already been priced into the market. Uh, everything that is already known, all those risks are always priced into uh, the capital markets. 
it's the unknown that is the greatest risk. And obviously that you can never anticipate that. So, so your, portfolio, your portfolio has to be structured in such a manner as to be able to withstand these uh, unanticipated uh, events. And that is where portfolio construction is very critical. And that's where we can add significant value. Okay. Well, you, you preempted my question, which was going to be, what can uh, what can investors do to help them prepare for future market volatility? So it's por- it's all about on. all about portfolio construction. the The investment industry in North America has commoditized over the last twenty five years. It seems that everyone's all in one portfolio solution, uh, the proverbial balanced portfolio. They all look the same now, and essentially these uh, balanced portfolios are designed to try and minimize uh, the the impact of the of the disruptions on a person's investments. Unfortunately, by virtue of of pursuing that strategy, they also minimize the potential to to actually create wealth. And so most investors are are caught in a trap where they need more capital growth uh, uh, than they have uh, experienced up until this point, um, but are being frustrated by portfolios that are extraordinarily diversified to the point to, to minimize the volatility of the capital markets. And so you end up getting a very limited uh, growth and people are, are are getting frustrated. So this is where portfolio construction is very important. You need to be somewhat uh, creative in the way you do things and uh, in order to create that potential for uh, higher returns in the future. And, and that's what we're working on. Yeah, we've, we've tried to take a very deliberate approach to um, creating a more unique portfolio construction that helps uh, remedy some of that lack of uh, of difference or, or that lack of return that has occurred as a result of the commoditization of the financial industry within uh, uh, within North America, as you mentioned. Now, the other thing I was going to say that also is important to help people prepare for future market volatility is to ensure that you have somebody that you're working with who can help you navigate those times, who can help you know give you the the correct perspective and and perhaps the uh, the correct discipline when it comes to not getting uh, caught up in the the events and the minutia of what is happening on a day-to-day basis. And that's where we come in. If anybody is interested in, uh, in reaching out to us, we're going to mention uh, what those avenues are, but they're, uh, they're welcome to do so. And, and we can work with individuals to try and help them achieve their financial goals and also uh, help guide them through difficult market periods, such as the one that we're living through at the present. I'd like to wrap up my comments by, by uh, quoting uh, billionaire entrepreneur, Peter Thiel, who said, brilliant thinking is rare, but courage is in even shorter supply than genius. Peter Thiel doesn't believe in copying the competition. He believes in creating a new path. And that's what MedWealth is all about, is creating a new path for portfolio construction. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great place to, uh, to wrap up. So in future episodes, we hope to bring on some historians to uh, help us tackle subjects such as the Great Depression. But I think we're going to leave the uh, the market history for uh, for at least a, a couple episodes now just so we can uh, refresh people's palates and talk about some other subjects as well. Next episode, we're going to be joined by my friend and colleague, Skylar Senkowski, uh, to discuss cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. It's a burgeoning field which uh, will likely impact us in the not-so-distant future, I think uh, much sooner than a lot of people realize. So that should be a very interesting discussion, and I encourage people to uh, tune into that next episode. But for now, I'll thank you, Dad, for providing your perspective on uh, the last few episodes and and your experience. And I'm going to turn it over uh, to Bill to wrap things up. Thank you. And 
That was great. Thank you guys. I really appreciate that. And, and, and it, I can't wait for the next podcast actually, because uh, I'm not a big Bitcoin fan, but I am a really big blockchain technology fan. And I think a mm-hmm. lot of people do not understand the dramatic, incredible implications of blockchain technology. So I really look forward yeah. to uh, that discussion in the next podcast. Um, this has been interesting. It's been good. And, and it's funny, John, I was sitting here while I, uh, listening to you talk about portfolio allocation thinking, but John, but John, the 60-40 portfolio has betrayed us this year. And, and as I was thinking that, you went right into that saying, yeah, you got to get a little creative and you've got to recognize that what has always worked doesn't necessarily always work. So yeah. last year as well, uh, you think about uh the bonds are supposed to be the uh, the protection in a portfolio, and last year bonds declined in the neighborhood of fifteen percent, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, it's it's been a cumulative decline over three years of fifteen percent. Uh, wow. Last last year, I think the number was in the order of magnitude of about fifteen percent. Our bond portfolio did not experience that. Fortunately, the construction has offset that. But uh, for the most part, if you're relying on traditional bond methodologies, uh, yeah, you've been hurt very badly, and you need a different form of uh, risk mitigation. Well, as always, let's wrap this up by asking you to tell folks who are interested how they can get in touch with you uh, and reach out to you. Maybe have a further conversation on a personal level with you guys. Absolutely. So uh, they can reach out to us anytime at info at medwealth.ca. That's info at med-wealth.ca for a free portfolio analysis or just to schedule a meeting to uh, to talk with us. They can visit our website at medwealth.ca. That's med-wealth.ca. And they can also reach us on X, LinkedIn, and by phone at 905-568-2000 or 1-888-568-1170. By the way, I'm just sorry to interject here. Uh, People can also sign up for our weekly newsletter that's Mm -hmm. produced, uh, which provides uh, commentary on what's going on in the capital markets and, and the global economy. Uh, in a manner that is uh, uh, perhaps more insightful. So if people are interested in just signing up for the newsletter, uh, they can go to our website, um, med-wealth.ca, and uh, do that. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thanks for the conversation. And listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen today. We hope this was a useful and informative conversation for you. I know it, it was for me. Uh, gave me some flashbacks, too, as a matter of fact, thinking about some of these financial crises. But uh, thanks for listening. If you're not a subscriber already, hit the subscribe button. It's easy. Then you will never miss another podcast from John and Alex. It will be delivered to the listening device of your preference, and you'll always be tuned in. If you like it, like to come a podcast, we humbly ask that you rate it and maybe recommend it to other people, help spread the word about what John and Alex are doing here. On behalf of everyone involved, I'm Bill Tucker, thanking you and reminding you, do not wait to live your best life. Live it today. Thank you for listening to Prescribing Prosperity. Visit our website at med-wealth.ca, that's med-wealth.ca, for more information or to connect with us for a consultation. Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. 
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and their guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of IPC Securities Corporation. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of a qualified and licensed financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment or retirement planning. MedWealth Financial Services can provide a private consultation to help you determine the suitability of any guidance discussed on the show.